I just thought it was relevant that um, my kind of foray into politics originally was through climate change and just the subjectivity of exploring that mental kind of contradiction of like what is predicted and what is being done and the kind of massive gap between making what needs to happen physically actually happen politically seeming so impossible um and so i was in the green party that was the first party i joined when i was quite young previous to the corbyn movement which i then joined labor and then have subsequently left afterwards so this is the manifesto for a sustainable society by the green party ah and it was from 1988 ah, okay dad gave it to me the other day oh that's cool where did he get it from he was at, at a green party meeting in 1988 i think Ah, interesting. Because, yeah, that's like right in the kind of anti-nuclear environmental movement heyday, I think. Mm. Like the Green Scare. And when the police infiltrated all those uh, environmental animal rights, all those kind of groups, those scandals come out recently about how they like had affairs with people and had children with them and stuff. Yeah. I opened the manifesto up just randomly onto a page the other day and I wouldn't be able to find it again very quickly. But like one of the many policies listed was moving on to a plant-based diet and all these different things. It was like 1988. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I could read like a couple out. Yeah. And it's printed just like um, on paper, like plain paper with type, isn't it? Yeah. Well... It looks ancient. Yeah, I know. It it, it does. I don't know exactly (laughs) what the printing process would have been, but it looks like it was a typewriter sort of copy almost. Yeah. So there's, Britain has not been self-sufficient in food since about 1840. The population was able to expand beyond the limit of self-sufficiency because the possession of an empire and an industrial structure, which was unique at the time, enabled the country easily to export goods in exchange for food. As long as the country maintained its dominance of world trade, the flow of imported foods would be expected to continue. And then there's actual policies. So one sort of short-term aim is to induce industry to invest in resource-saving technology. For example, the miniaturization of electronics, the minimization of waste during manufacturing processes, the manufacture of long-life products, and conservation of energy and industry. And then also another one of their short-term aims was to encourage research into ecologically sound cultivation techniques of biologically renewable raw materials, develop less energy-intensive methods of cropping and processing, and ensure that land is available for cultivation. So those were short-term aims for natural resources. And so there's a short-term policy under energy, and this one is to set up a central energy authority to absorb the existing separate boards, gas, electricity, coal, as a means of eliminating unnecessary competition for selling energy between the suppliers. Its function would be to administer the decentralization of control of energy to the district energy authorities, and once accomplished, to remain as a coordinating body. Yeah, it's interesting, like, looking... It is interesting. I mean, their analysis of empire seems um, more astute than today. I mean, I don't know that for a fact, but... Comes off that way. I don't remember seeing much, like, kind of imperial analysis from the Green Party, yeah. And that must be before they had any MPs. Yeah, yeah. Here's one. Until renewable resources become generally available, coal will remain our principal primary energy source. Dangers are recognised and the vigorous energy conservation programme proposed will restrain its consumption as far as possible. Research will also be promoted into... I mean, this was when we still had like 30 years. Yeah. Yeah, fewer people would have believed in climate change at the time. It's before we were born. Yeah, it's interesting. But it's 20, 30 years after science was readily when, when was it that the white house was like putting solar panels on its roof and then tearing them off again oh yeah who was that that was uh carter was it yeah i think so 
he's like really old and owns a peanut farm now. <laughs> <laughs> and then was it like Reagan or someone like that taking them off? Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. And like the the Green Party are more relevant now electorally because of their gains in local councils and the opening up of political space to the left of the Labour Party, which is kind of pro-austerity. And the Green Party are anti-austerity quite unequivocally, which makes them relevant. Mm. But like they're, they're still quite establishment in the sense they're like pro-NATO and all these things. And during the Corbyn project, where there was a real viable alternative, they didn't collaborate. They like stood against him in every seat and spoke very disparagingly of Corbyn. Yeah, that's very disappointing. And on that note, let's get on with the episode. How can you know that I'm self-censoring? How can you know that you're self-censoring? I'm sure you believe everything you're saying. But what I'm saying is if you believe something different, you wouldn't be sitting where you're sitting. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. You don't go to poor countries to make money. I mean, the Philippines are rich. Brazil is rich. Mexico is rich. Chile is rich. Only the people are poor. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. You get a lot of killers while you think our country's so innocent. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I mean millionaire funded by billionaires that's what you are you're not you're not part of the solution uh mr mr carlson you're part of the problem it's like there's billions to be made there to be carved out and be taken there's been billions for 400 years the capitalist european and north american powers have carved out and taken timber the flax the hemp the cocoa the rum the tin the copper the iron the rubber the bauxite, the slave and the cheap labor these countries are not underdeveloped they're over let us be together and recognize another world is possible if we come together to understand the power we've got and achieve that decent, better society where everyone matters. I don't know who created Pokemon Go, but I'm trying to figure out how we get them to have Pokemon go to the polls. We are the ones that are suffering and the corporations that you're talking about, the businesses that you're talking about, and the warehouses that you're talking about. So that's the reason why I think I was invited today to speak on that. He's deflected from the actual argument at hand. What I try and do is be fair about Trump. What you do is be relentlessly anti-Trump and relentlessly pro-somebody like Obama. I'm not pro-Obama. I've been a critic of Obama. I'm a critic of the Democratic Party because I'm literally a communist. Um, so just take that into consideration that the people are the ones that make these corporations go. It's not the, it's not the other way around. And as the mole of history returns to the surface once more, we're here. I'm Tom. And I'm Fred. I, I am here just about. Oh, okay. Well, are you less there than normal? <laughs> well, I just wanted a reference to being ill, <laughs> but without being very specific. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, um, I'll keep that in. So you've done it. Yeah. Um, yeah, no. I'm glad that we've managed to sit down and have this chat, but it's a big one. So it, we're talking about the climate crisis today yeah. and painting a picture as much as we can, one that we'll have to return to and talk about specifics on many times in the future. So today we're sort of approaching it from a, a broad perspective, looking at 
some of the facts of what's happening at the moment, disasters that can already be seen, the relationships that exist mm. as a part of it happening. We want to cover a, a lot of different things, don't we, Fred? Yeah, it's like a complex, interconnected subject in the same way that the climate is itself that as a system. So we'll kind of meander our way through, hopefully touch on some important things that are all connected, basically. Yeah, exactly. And by the end, hopefully reach a conversation around what could be next, what do some of the solutions look like, but acknowledging the fact that that's changing yeah. every day. Uh, it's an ongoing thing which needs to be confronted here and now because of the scale and complexity of the issue. We're approaching it from a perspective of most definitely there are things to be done. Uh, how, how optimistic would you say you feel, Fred? Uh, well, yeah, it's an interesting one because in terms of like psychologically and subjectively, it's a really important conversation around optimism because so many people are so nihilistic now uh, and so without hope that it kind of prevents action. But at the same time, you want to accurately interface with the reality of what's happening and what is no longer possible already. So we're kind of infamously optimistic in the face of a lot of this thing because we think that there are real political alternatives that are possible. So in many ways, we're more optimistic than like the kind of general population, especially young people who are consigned to not really understanding any kind of radical alternative that could help. And so just thinking like the future is, well, the conflation of capitalism with humanity in general, like this is just what humans do. And we're kind of a virus, all that kind of stuff. And it's inevitable, our fate. I would say it's becoming gradually more challenging to be as optimistic. And I think there's a serious discussion around that to be had but there's still a kind of revolutionary flame in my heart yeah we're in the final years of optimism being possible yeah there is still potential and where there's potential we see opportunity and see a course that we could navigate yeah where millions fewer people would die and there would be far less brutal living conditions for those that are alive yeah and importantly i guess there's because we see a revolutionary rupture as being possible there is a pathway where the very thing that is making it so difficult to change becomes our advantage under different system where like international institutions that are based on profit that are so hard to move. If we have control of international institutions, we have huge amounts of power to change the world. So like our biggest disadvantages in the current system can become our biggest advantages if we change how we relate to them. So I think we were going to like start talking about the current state of things, start off maybe with some of the, the disasters that are happening as we yeah. speak. Are there any that I've probably missed in the last 24 hours, Fred? Have you seen anything? Uh, well, I think UK flooding. Oh yeah, um, which city was it? Because you know we've seen it in Spain, and then we were seeing it in the UK as well. well. We saw it in Berlin. Like I don't think it was flooding, but you sent me some footage mm. of like Berlin the other day, like walls of water just falling through the yeah, air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then yeah, Spain obviously had those like people just riding their cars down the road. Yeah. <laughs> and okay, it's landing in the UK. Yeah, in, in, in Sheffield. And the Met Office is warning that more flash flooding could come this week as a result of the fast-changing weather. The forecast follows a weekend of thunderstorms, hail and strong winds which hit parts of the UK. After a week of sunny and warm weather for most of the country, Sunday saw a significant change. Thunderstorms across the UK triggered flooding after nearly half a month's worth of rain in just one hour deluged some areas. In Sheffield, a driver had to be rescued from her car after it became stuck in rising waters. So it's at the same time as those people are freaking out about the orange confetti being thrown on Osborne. <laughs> <laughs> Just stop oil, like, um, or I think the 
exact identity of the person and their allegiance and what they're attached to or not. There's loads of speculation because it just happened. But this lady threw some orange confetti over him. And then the media are having a whole thing about, I, I dislike uh, Osborne, but on his wedding day. <laughs> on his wedding. Could you imagine orange confetti? Have some respect about <laughs> his wife. <laughs> It appears to be the case that the campaign group Just Stop Oil have attacked George Osborne, the ex-Chancellor of the Exchequer, on his wedding day earlier today. Take a look at this. So Mr Osborne and his wife have come out of church, greeting family and friends, at which point they appear to be set upon by a Just Stop Oil campaigner throwing orange confetti on the bride and the groom. Now, I think this attack is reprehensible. Whether you like George Osborne or you don't like him, that's not the issue. It's a private occasion. It's their wedding day. How does this make him feel? How does it make the bride feel? How does it make the family and friends feel on what should be a special day? So they're, so they're doing like the thing where it's like, oh, you can protest, but it has to be peaceful. Oh, you can protest, but it can't be at a private event, but there was media there. Okay, well, it can't, you have to target the people who are responsible. Well, what you were. So it's like, you know, taking that respectability politics to its untenable, crazy conclusion. Yeah, that whole private wedding thing is, is really similar to the techniques that the companies are using to put injunctions on properties through the courts, which turns it into something that can be prosecuted for up to like two years in prison. Uh... So it's sort of like you can protest but this place has got an injunction like you know just outside this oil I refinery see. there's an injunction so you're on that land it's got an injunction from the court mm. and so we can pursue you through the courts oh god yeah and we'll post like the new policing bill now as well which when we were talking about the royal protesters that was literally as it had been passed so now they the police can kind of choose to shut down a protest off their own backs by just saying that it's causing a public nuisance it was it was forced through last minute right before the coronation. So that over policing that we saw was a direct result of them having the extra extra powers and it not being yeah. part of the protocols yet. And Starmer has said that he won't repeal it. Yeah, yeah. He's like, if you can get as much through as you can before I probably inevitably take power because you fucked up so much. Yeah. <laughs> and I won't take it back though, you know. So like get going. Yeah. And it's it's just got even more extreme. So now he said on the record that they're not going to change public spending commitments from the Tories, at least at first, like at all. And this latest quote is that he hates tree huggers in response to Ed Miliband gave a climate policy presentation to the to the shadow cabinet. Um, and he's, you know, the last one who's kind of soft left, let's call him, um, and like is quite like knows his stuff on climate and is relatively you know, in that context, quite radical in terms of proposing solutions. And apparently, like Starmer said, I hate tree huggers in response, and that he doesn't want the environment stuff to distract from their other policies. And there's a whole thing about potentially he's being briefed against because he's going to get reshuffled out before the election. But yeah, that's taken another step forward as well. Oh, yeah. And, and the joke I was going to make was um, that we spoke last episode about Osborne, and it was about private water. And since then, Thames water has collapsed. Sky News certainly understands that talks are underway between government ministers and the water regulator Offwatch to draw up contingency plans in case the firm 
does collapse, the concern is that it simply isn't going to be able to service its £14 billion of debt. Now, the 15 million customers served by Thames Water are more used to their water company being in the headlines for the huge leaks, for sewage contamination, for massive executive pay deals, huge bonuses being given to board members. And now they're hearing that the firm may go under. Now, we understand that talks at an early stage could uh, involve something similar to what happened when the energy firm Bulb went under in 2021. So this is a special administration regime which would effectively bring Thames Water under temporary public ownership. Of course, Thames Water, a much larger company than Bulb, and there are fears that that could leave taxpayers liable to billions of pounds. Of course, all this set against the backdrop of huge and rising water bills for customers, reports in the Times that water companies want to charge consumers even more for their water. And this will all, of course, reopen that uh, fierce debate that's been raging for many years over the privatisation of the country's water industry. All a bit of a mess. So with things we mentioned, <laughs> we have to be careful with this power. <laughs> <laughs> so there's Berlin, Spain, UK, there's the, the Canadian wildfires. Yeah. And when I last was catching up on that, there was 500 fires across the country. Mm. 200 were still out of control and they were like very much likely to burn throughout the entire summer oh and it's 8 million hectares of forest oh destroyed this season already and all that smoke was like blowing down through new york and covered various cities in there yeah yeah like orange skies and yeah and there were, there were mask mandates like if you're breathing in that amount of stuff it does a number on your lungs and everything so yeah yeah, it's becoming much more visible in the first world, isn't it, at the moment? Yeah. Last summer, like the UK, we had wildfires, stuff was melting. And then this summer, have you seen that diagram that's like that curve of like global temperature? Um, and it shows each year following the line within the kind of average. 2022 is on like the very top within the average band. And then 2023 follows that above it. And then in this last couple of months, just goes up off the band. And that's never happened before. Would you be able to find it? Yeah. So we'll put it in the show notes. And how quickly do you think you'd find it? Would I be able to see it? Yeah, do you want to have a look? Um... So we've broken the record four times in the past week. Yeah. For like the hottest day globally for around 125,000 years. Yeah. And then we just had the hottest June ever recorded. And it's on track to be the hottest year in human history currently. And that graph shows a blip that's larger than any of the other years that it shows from 1940 the average of that to 2014 and then every year since 2014 all those years track within a variation that is less than the amount more this is on top of any previous peak at that time in the year right mm. it goes up three times the, the the normal variation in this month yeah it basically looks like it's starting a new curve that would be totally different well, and when we think about the fact that these like these systems are all kind of like interconnected and exponentially increasing, yeah, it's it's like it's the start of like a new like epoch of yeah, I was like say. before bef before averages even begin again. Yeah, yeah, like you said, there's feedback um, effects that can get triggered. The whole thing's very fragile in different ways, 
and in ways that are surprising even to the climate models that are being done right like we're kind of ahead of the worst case scenarios of the models that were being done like even a few years ago in india authorities in the capital new delhi are warning of shortages of drinking water after the city of 20 million people was inundated by torrential rains forcing the evacuation of thousands of people in low-lying neighborhoods recent flooding in india has left at least 22 people dead rains have pushed the yamuna river to levels not seen in nearly half a century on tuesday the swollen river was lapping the walls of the famed taj mahal prompting fears the 17th century monument could become damaged southern europe is baking under an unrelenting heat wave with parts of spain forecast to top 45 degrees celsius or 113 degrees fahrenheit this week a report in the journal nature medicine found europe's historically hot summer last year resulted in more than 61,000 premature deaths. Here in the United States, multiple tornadoes touched down Wednesday across the Chicago area, including a twister that struck near Chicago O'Hare International Airport, prompting passengers to take cover and disrupting hundreds of flights. More than 112 million people across the U.S. were under heat alerts Wednesday, with more blistering heat in the forecast through the weekend. Meanwhile, Vermont, which has suffered from major flooding, is expecting major rainfall this weekend. In the Caribbean, marine biologists are warning unprecedented ocean heat is further stressing a coral reef system that's already on the brink of collapse. This week, the former's insurance company said it would no longer cover properties in Florida, citing increasingly frequent extreme weather and flooding events caused by the climate crisis. There's crop failures already being experienced. We've already seen a 20% drop in food production in recent years, like due to crop failures. And even that over the course of like a few years would mean that we would start to not see food in supermarkets and stuff. You know, there's like a delay in a crop failure impacting the shelves, isn't there? Because the grain yeah. stores and stuff, it's a couple of years between the harvest and, yeah. and the, the product. But at levels that we've already seen in previous years, if that happens more consistently, that will result in there being no food. Yeah, I'm hearing a lot about like in the southern United States, the, the lack of water in the kind of arid desert areas where they kind of like pipe it in all the time and how like there's a time bomb there about how loads of farms are just going to foreclose because they can't get the water and the whole infrastructure is collapsing and the uh, red states ultra privatized systems are falling apart. On C-SPAN, the other last week, I think it was when these records were being broken, like they have all these, it's an American network, it covers all the, the House and the Senate and stuff, but also has these like call-ins, this call-in show called the Washington Journal. Mm -hmm. And they have all these sort of callers calling in from the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, and then Independent. And people were calling in with their opinions on global warming. And... Washington Journal starts now. We'll begin with the Earth hitting unofficial records of high temperatures. On Monday came the Earth's hottest day in 125,000 years. Tuesday was hotter. Democrats and Republicans have grown further apart in the last decade in their assessments of the threat posed by climate change. Climate change is a low priority for Americans than other national issues. Biden was in California to tout his administration's steps to combat climate change. Here's what he had to say. I've toured many sites across the country that clearly show climate change is a genuine, is the existential threat to humanity. 
President Donald Trump was recently at the Moms for Liberty Summit in Philadelphia. Here's what he had to say. Climate change extremists that are destroying our country. These are extremists. Remember, the biggest threat we have, according to Biden, is climate change because the ocean's going to rise over the next 200 years by one-eighth of an inch. But the fact that you have five countries out there with nuclear weapons pointed at us, that's not a threat. Can you imagine? Hey, good morning, uh, Greta. Morning. Just always nice to see you on C-SPAN. Fabulous. I want to tell you the whole world something. You are deforesting this nation. You're taking the umbrella away from Mother Earth. The tribal native people have been telling you leave Mother Earth alone the whole life. I wish young people would start listening to tribal native ways. They have been here for five to ten centuries. This nation has not even been here one century and it is screwed up. We must build common sense living. I have to say that I understand my demographic here who's listening. It's a lot of older people, and we are here because of all the decisions that you all made back in the 60s, 70s, 80s. That has affected us now. There's so much technology that was suppressed by the automotive industry, but we decided to do profit. It's the global way, just to make as much profit as possible. We need to shift our mindset as a community, as a total world, and, and really focus on what's going on. We're getting hot, it's gonna keep getting hotter. It's not gonna get any better. What's your view? Hello? David, your turn. Okay, regarding climate, I listened to Trump's campaign speak, and he said the human scum Democrats came up with this climate hoax backed by the fake news media. But uh, God said in the book of Electivus, I created the heavens and earth for mankind, and you refused to take care of it. God said, I'll turn the heavens into iron, the earth into bronze. Only when you take care of it will I restore it. Thanks, these fans. All right. Here is Republican Senator John Barrasso last month. Biden administration teaming up with the climate extremists, making it even worse on American energy. And yet Joe Biden has now commanded the EPA to prioritize climate change over energy that is available. The EPA is now the evil empire as it attacks American energy prosperity, American energy production. Facebook, Cheryl Hernandez writes in to say, it's real. The warnings started 50 years ago. I've lived in California for over 68 years, and each year it gets hotter and winters are getting colder. There's no plan B, people. Contaminated drinking water, soil and air, the same people rejecting refugees won't have anywhere to go because the whole earth is becoming unlivable. CO2 shows up annually in an ice core. How come in the past 150 years, evidence of CO2 increase is predominant? So how much CO2 in the air right now, parts per million, it's over 400. If we keep going at this rate, we have about 10 or 15 years where there's no hope whatsoever because you won't be able to turn it back. Yes, oh God deal what's going on yes too i don't i don't agree with that green energy and i don't believe in that because if we go to the green deal it's gonna we're gonna have so much poverty so god put oil on earth for a reason so is that if people want to go to that green deal fine if you want to go on the bad side but me i ain't gonna vote for that joe hitler biden so god bless america 
I'm not so sure how much effect we have on the climate change. Well, there's definitely uh, evidence about what the problem is that we really have to worry about is pollution. Since 1970, or the 70s, we've reduced the forests in the world by about 50%, and the animals have been reduced by about 40%. They say that, that America wastes about 40% of the food that we buy. Colors earlier was talking about the parts per million uh, uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and he's absolutely right about that. If we're able to limit the carbon content of the atmosphere to 350 parts per million, we could stabilize the Earth's climate, but right now it's up to 420, and it's still going up because we have been kicking the environmental can down the road for decades. We knew what was happening. A hundred years now, future generations are going to curse us for failing to act when we could. So God bless America, and all everybody stick to God. Meaning you have a little more beachfront property, okay? That's the way I feel. The other thing that's happening with, with when it comes to crops is the big agriculture and the, the companies that are doing it at such a scale where they're just like pumping fields, soil full of like fertilizer that it can't absorb because it's just so potent and they're chucking it in and then there's mm. all, all this like byproduct that's dropping off of the, the land mm. and like into streams and, and whatnot. And oh, in the yeah. Amazon, the that's like, yeah, the runoff, exactly. In the Amazon, along with the mining and the deforestation, the water's being significantly affected in the rivers and the streams and it's running off into the ocean. And since 2011, there's been this belt of seaweed called the Great Sargassum Belt that extends from West Africa to the Gulf of Mexico. And in June 2018, this like 8,850 kilometre belt contained, they say, around 20 million metric tons of biomass. And more recently, the most recent estimate I can see was, was smaller than that. But this belt that spans almost a quarter of the circumference of the Earth then dies in the second half of the year, and the sargassum draws oxygen out of the water column, which is likely a major contributor to marine dead zones. It's a like choking supply and then overwhelming supply all like, uh, yeah, yeah. All, every year. It's like peaks and troughs of, of certain resources. Yeah. But yeah, so we've done we've done crops and all that. Uh India though was on the list and Pakistan and China. Yeah, because Pakistan was it last year that had that major flooding mm. where I think like about a third of the country was underwater suddenly. It's colossal. And they're still kind of dealing with that and because they're hyper exploited, they're in a very difficult position to be able to do that. Yeah. And there wasn't that much mainstream coverage of it in the media. And you know the thing about like uh the wet bulb effect with humans? There's like a temperature which if you get over depending on the local conditions of humidity and stuff there's a temperature where it will just kill you because you can't radiate heat faster than it's coming into your body i think it's based on a combination of humidity and temperature maybe and it's like those temperatures will be reached on more and more regions as climate change progresses yikes yeah so that's part of the conditions that will just necessarily involve mass migration yeah if we continue like the way that things are going, there's no question that it'll be impossible to live in huge regions Yeah, with like intolerable heat waves and then also no food. The horrible thing about it, I mean, as if it's not all horrible, but <laughs> yeah. you know, we're talking about billions of people, like regions of the planet that have billions of people currently living on it and a slow sort of suffering, I mean, death for millions of people. Yeah, it's collapsed conditions. Yeah. I think it's like coastal regions, Pacific Islands, North Africa are first. 
I think North Africa and like kind of parts of the Middle East are the ones that are going to go too hot first. Um, I mean, there's already, it's like within the next year, I can't remember exactly, but there's cities that are going to run out of water. Yeah. Water everywhere, but not a drop in your sink. For years now, that has been the painful reality for some people across South Africa. It is a crisis with multiple causes and climate change is making things worse. But the water shortage is mainly due to the disastrous effects of human actions. The South American nation of Uruguay was the first country in the world to enshrine the right to clean drinking water in its constitution. Now, that was back in 2004. We're now the country's capital. Montevideo is experiencing its worst drought in more than 70 years. Making a cup of traditional mate or tea with tap water was once easy. But drought means people are being forced to turn to bottled supplies. It's a luxury not everyone can afford. Many have to rely on lower quality municipal sources. Drinking mate with this water is difficult. It's difficult because of its taste and the discomfort it causes in the stomach. This tap water also gives you a headache. Here you cannot buy bottled water. Some people can buy it and others cannot. Uruguay is facing its worst drought in decades. The Paso Severino Reservoir on the Santa Lucia River used to supply fresh water to over half of Uruguay's 3.4 million inhabitants. Now it is almost dry. And I guess the only other big bit of context to those events is that um, El Nino is conditions that are starting. 2022 was the hottest La Nina that was like slightly cooling effect. And in the top 10 hottest years on record, isn't it? Yeah. Do you want to go into a little bit like what you know about what El Nino is? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know loads. I just know it's a kind of cyclical climate event that comes and goes, like creates hotter conditions and more storms and then colder conditions when it kind of reverses. And it's across like Northern and Central America primarily, I believe. Yeah, it's a band of warm ocean water that develops in the central and east central equatorial Pacific, including the area off the Pacific coast of South America. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't, I don't think that people realized it was coming this soon. Uh, so it's just going to like push up the extreme outlier events that are already happening. So that will contribute to this year and coming years. I think it lasts multiple years. It tends to. And, and then these kinds of events also become more erratic and more powerful as the climate warms. So like we've seen with that flooding, that's increased heavy rainfall over short periods. Things that are like less likely but can happen just become more likely. And that's why like we see more flooding, flash flooding in, in Europe and places we don't often see. It's, it's sort of like flash events unpredictably located as well, isn't it? And they yeah. may come once and then not come again, but like just leave havoc in their wake. It's not that that area is going to flood every year. I'm not saying like it's also not that, but you know, sometimes it's just a freak weather event and just all these anomalies happening much more frequently. Yeah. And in the content and what's relevant to the UK is like the Gulf Stream as well, because we're much warmer for our kind of geographical altitude, like how north we are. Because if you, if you follow us across on the map northwise, you kind of imagine, or I kind of imagine that we're like in the middle of America or something, but we're like in Canada where it's like very snowy and cold all the time uh, or in Scandinavia similarly and like the thing that keeps us more moderate compared to how high up on the map we are is the Gulf Stream that brings this warm air across from the USA and that region and so that's quite fragile that can be diverted which would make the UK much colder so I think there's there's uncertainty even in that sense because it will get warmer in the UK overall with global warming but if that diverts it will Mm. suddenly get much colder 
And so mm. things like that are hard to predict and plan for, which is why like, at the time that we've been talking about that our infrastructure has been hollowed out and is so fragile and things like pandemics also become more likely. I mean, it's mass events like this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the difficulty to predict the exact way it's going to play out is a, a byproduct of the science of probabilities, isn't it? Yeah. And and kind of it being such a complex system yeah. with so many overlapping um, kind of parts that each individually have their own exponential crises as well as impact each other's yeah. in ways that like kind of a temporal as well as like spatial and so it's randomization effect but in a direction of continued warming in 2007 mm. the ipcc um said that emissions had to be in decline by 2015 mm. for us to like hit a two degrees limit obviously we, we didn't achieve that and the decarbonisation rate has, if anything, slowed over the last few years. Mm. And the 1.5 degrees limit that was set, agreed upon at COP21, where 195 members signed on to keep temperatures well below 2 degrees and preferably below the 1.5 degree limit above pre-industrial levels. So it's like the temperature, mm. the average temperature of the planet compared with that of pre-industrial times. With that like 1.5 degree limit, it was saying two degrees is out of the question, like going to be a catastrophe, like just terrible. Yeah. And 1.5 is what we just briefly exceeded, wasn't it? Yeah. And in fact, I've got a BBC um, article here. Mm. It was from yeah 2023, so this year. Mm. Our overheating world is likely to break a key temperature limit for the first time over the next few years, scientists predict. Researchers say there's now a 66% chance we will pass the 1.5 degree global warming threshold between now and 2027. The chances are rising due to emissions from human activities and a likely El Nino weather pattern later this year. And breaking the limit for even just one year is a worrying sign that warming is accelerating and not slowing down. 1.5 degree figure has become a symbol of global climate negotiations. Countries agreed to pursue efforts. The thing with the BBC's coverage here is that I've cut out the sentences in between where paragraph three in BBC's coverage of this. If the world passes the limit, scientists stress the breach while worrying will likely be temporary. <laughs> scientists uh, reassure us that it will be temporary. <laughs> So yeah, but the takeaway from that is there's a 66% chance that we will pass it before 2027. You've just said rightly that we've already briefly passed it this year. Mm. Um, and the only way that we can even start to achieve these targets, the only way that we can think of about hitting any of them is to, to go to zero emissions mm. in the quickest possible amount of time. Yeah. And like there's, there's loads of nuance around even net zero and like absolute zero. The, and, the, and the fact that we're... The UK is seeking out new oil fields in the North Sea currently, which is what the Just Stop Oil campaign is explicitly about. Yeah. Well, I mean, on that one, they've got like permits already, haven't they? But they, And they, they've shelved them and they're petitioning for more. Yeah. They're basically the way they sort of approach it is that they want a library of existing permits as well. You know, mm. we can't afford to use the oil that's already out of the ground and they're shelving licenses yeah. to drill more and then petitioning and lobbying for more license. Yeah. And once they're in, they're so hard to undo because of the power that the fossil lobby and its kind of various tools have. And yeah. then it's just built in to our trajectory, which is very worrying. Yeah. I mean, a, a, a tangent about the Saudis, like about the journalism in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, it's not tangentized. Well, a few years ago, there was a very prominent journalist 
uh, working in Saudi Arabia who is critical of the regime because it's a uh, royal system and they're, I think they're the wealthiest royal family in the world. And after he was doing his reporting, it was leaked and eventually found out after investigation and things that uh, he was taking refuge or he was taking a meeting or something in the one of the embassies and he was killed and then he was chopped up. And then it's alleged that he was then eaten. He was cooked along with barbecue meats on the premises and consumed by guests. So there was no evidence of his body. I don't know how speculative the last part is, but he was definitely chopped up and disappeared. And then because they're a kind of prominent ally of the United States, there wasn't much international pushback on that side. Well, didn't it come around the time that the war in Ukraine meant that the Biden administration needed to find another source of oil possibly yeah i I think it might have been before but maybe that was affecting i think it happened before but i think that the the condemnation was stunted by like kind of a a sudden need to pivot towards a closeness um with them yeah i think you're right because then he visited didn't he and did that infamous fist bump and stuff yeah U.S. President Joe Biden says he's confronted Saudi Arabia's crown prince over the murder of dissident journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Biden is in the kingdom on a highly anticipated but controversial visit. When he arrived, he bumped fists with Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince and de facto leader. Biden had refused to speak to him after Khashoggi was killed in a Saudi consulate in 2018. U.S. intelligence says the crown prince approved the killing. U.S. President Joe Biden held talks with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, a man he once promised to make a pariah over the murder of U.S.-based journalist Jamal Khashoggi. So they had to cosy up for, um, well, I mean, they've got lots of oil barreled, but cosy up for an ongoing supply. Yeah. Feed that complex. Yeah. Something that ties together a couple of the things that we were just talking about in terms of various reports. Mm. And then also Saudi Arabia. And then also lobbying was that in the IPCC report that most recently came out, the one where it was basically giving us the final sort of take before the next time they do it, which will be too late to avoid the worst mm. of it. And the the wording that was leaked by some activists who saw the draft was that phasing out of all fossil fuels was necessary. But after lobbying from Saudi Arabia, Mm -hmm. the wording changed to say that there would be a transitioning away from fossil fuels using lower carbon energy sources, such as renewables Mm. and fossil fuels with carbon capture technologies. Mm. And, you know, we don't even have the technology to capture all the carbon. Yeah. I think that's just an example, isn't it? It's entirely theoretical. Yeah. And it's like being used on the basis of allowing us to get to net zero and things. Yeah. Yeah. So we've done like disasters that are currently happening. We sort of touched on reports and some facts Mm. and things. I've got like a list of other facts. I mean, obviously quite difficult to hear. And and like the reality is quite starkly existential and difficult to process and almost seems unreal because it's us talking about like the fact that humanity and all life on earth and the climate as it stands is all subject to in the very near future in like what would be most likely the fastest extinction event ever seen on the planet to to disappear uh, like as in all those things are under threat um and yet there's lots more things that back that up <laughs> yeah and I think painting the picture, it's worth saying, like, this is everything. But then we will be coming back around to, for sanity's sake, how it's functioning, mm. what incentives and motives and pieces are, like, causing this to be the case. Yeah. And then once some sanity is restored, we will talk about what could be next. Yeah. 
yeah, we'll work out how to structure kind of optimism in because same as the last episode where we're going through all the current crises uh, yeah. and then it's like, how much do we talk about? I know, because this could very well be a couple of hours of really scary facts. Yeah. And I think I think rather than shying away from that being the case, just to know that we're going to come around at the end is like better, isn't it? Yeah. I wanted to talk about the Arctic sea ice. What's not so widely known is in 2016, there was this report that wasn't picked up by the media at all. The report was by the NOAA and they do like an Arctic report card every year. I, mm. I've been like sort of looking through a few of them over the last couple of days. And I mean, there's a lot more to take in. Yeah. But it was in that report where it was saying that the permafrost has switched in the Arctic from being a carbon sink to becoming a carbon source. Mm. An entire process has changed its contributions or lack thereof from being something that was absorbing to being something that's now emitting carbon. Mm. And that's like... Was that stuff trapped in ice or something? Yeah, I think I think it... Well, there's hundreds of square miles of reflective device that's calling like the arctic yeah. and the planet like generally i think one of the feedback processes there as well is the white ice reflects heat more efficiently and when it starts to melt the blue sea absorbs it more so it, as it starts to melt it speeds up itself as well and yeah and on the subject of our ocean which the ocean in itself is the planet's largest ability to absorb heat yeah we've got two ecosystems on the planet which are the jewels mm. we've got the Great Barrier Reef, mm. which I think is now widely accepted to be lost. Leached. Yeah. Like this, this la- like the largest living, it's not a living organism, is it? But you can see it from... It's like a colony, isn't it? Yeah, you can see it from space. To 2020, it suffered three major bleachings in five years, which is like nothing has ever mm. happened like that to the reef before. And yeah, it's massively under threat. Do you know much more about the barrier reef? Well, just that, like, I think as an environment, it's like the rainforest and that it's like a very concentrated area of massive biodiversity that's um, very reliant on those particular conditions. And like around Australia and Oceania there, there's such a diversity of life that is dying off very quickly. The rainforest was the other of the two jewels. Mm. Yeah, with the rainforests, there's wildfires. I mean, people are, as it stands, under the profit motive in the economy that we have are incentivized to burn their crops and they can't afford to maintain them, to employ the labor, to tend to the soil directly. And when they can't use fertilizers or more efficient machinery, they resort to burning the soil, which has a long-term negative effect on the quality, but has the short-term effect of fertilizing the soil. I mean, especially in like sub-Saharan Africa, they've got these crop burnings that, that go on and like release huge amounts of carbon and methane. But happening in the Amazon as well, it's something that cannot be done. And you can literally see the scale of the impact with satellites. I mean, the entire Amazon burning, but it's happening anyway. There's, there's something about the act of physically lighting the forests that is such a visceral example of how choices can be made to significantly change some of the worst disasters that we are witnessing and yet the profit motive is blocking it from happening. Another one I was going to mention exactly like that is with the melting of the sea ice, nations like Russia and the US are seeing dollar signs in terms of de-iced regions that they can drill for oil, they can have shipping routes through and they can like colonize 
Yeah, exactly. They're already pushing shipping routes further and further into the Arctic as things stand. Mm. So water's becoming much warmer, much more like human waste that's being polluted into deeper into the Arctic. And then also because of these loud noises and stuff, which are moving deeper into the ecosystem, there's these huge populations of indigenous species, which are being like displaced from those regions and pushed into regions which are of like less preferable mm. temperatures and, and environment by creeping shipping routes and everything that are pushing further in just because they can access it now because there's no ice yeah and then they get overfished i guess as well yeah yeah well this is it there's indigenous like peoples as well that hunt for their food they're already struggling to to get their food yeah have you heard about the um great orca revolution that's currently happening where they're all bumping into yachts yeah they're like downing luxury yachts and stuff and like grouping together (laughs) in like ways they've never been observed to do before communicating and they're literally like seeming to organize i think even across species now to the rise in killer whale attacks video emerging shows an orca biting off the rudders of a boat in the waters off spain as we also see unusual behavior closer to home scientists theorize a whale named gladys off the coast of spain has been teaching other whales to attack boats and at the same time researchers here at home they say that they've just spotted a pod of orca whales off the coast of the atlantic in a location they have never seen them before a small group of orcas is causing a lot of damage to boats off the Iberian Peninsula, raising questions about why the orcas are doing it. In the middle of the night last October, Artur Napoleão was sailing miles off the coast of Portugal to deliver a boat to a client. He ran up to the deck to find the boat surrounded by a pod of orcas. They mess around for five minutes and then they went to another boat, like one, two miles. But the pod returned, not once, but three times, the visit spanning over several hours, well after sunrise. I got really scared until I realized, until I see the orcas and see their movements and how gentle they were when I stopped the boat. In the past three years, hundreds of boat and orca interactions have been reported off the coasts of Portugal, Spain and Morocco. And the meetings are not always gentle. Just last month, killer whales surrounding a boat sailing through the Strait of Gibraltar were met with loud noises, an attempt by the crew to scare them off. The pod rammed the boat continuously for over an hour, managing to remove the rudder. Like it became a kind of a meme that the animals are starting the revolution now. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah. And on top of those, then back on the subject of rainforests, have you heard of the zombie fires in Siberia? No, it sounds scary. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so there's zombies as well. No, no, there's these fires which don't go out at any point. Like, you know, they sort of subside over winter, but they continue burning at a really low rate. And then I'm back in spring and they're just constantly there. Mm. And as this Al Jazeera article says, environmentalists have warned that wildfires may hasten the thaw of Siberian permafrost and peatlands, releasing carbon stored in the frozen tundra into the atmosphere. Siberia's permafrost is melting, Mm. like causing swamps and everything. Just like another scary example of, I mean, the Amazon is obviously like the the largest example of a rainforest disappearing. And like, if you watch those maps, like those time-lapse maps, you just see it like disappear, don't you? Yeah. I guess like a little bit of reformist good news, like slightly good news we could throw in there. It's like Lula taking power in Brazil rather than Bolsonaro, who was all in on just mega. I think he was climate denialist completely, wasn't he? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, he was he was just like chopping down the rainforest as, as quickly as he could, wasn't he? Yeah. And I think it's also just come through that he's barred from running in an election again 
for a few years so he couldn't run in the next election and by then he might be old or dead because he's he's infamously ill all the time and now he's in florida (laughs) (laughs) yeah in florida that's it yeah in the southern part of the amazon lies the brazilian state most affected by deforestation hondonia it has an immense native reserve the land of the uruel wauwau The ancestral dance happening this day is to prepare for war. It enacts defeating an enemy, which today is anyone who enters their land to extract wood. The loggers cut down this tree and dragged it over here with their tractors. It was left to be loaded on their trucks, but we stepped in and seized it. These natives are threatened not only by illegal timber extraction, but also by illegal land grabbers, known as grileiros, who sell small plots of the land using false documents. Since Jair Bolsonaro became Brazil's president, around 100 grileiros have invaded parts of the Uruguay-Wauwau Reserve. Recently, this plaque with the logo of Brazil's Federal Agency for Indigenous Rights, FUNAI, was shot through with bullets. The parallels have always been remarkable between Donald Trump and the man dubbed the Trump of the tropics, Jair Bolsonaro. Turns out that didn't end when they both left office. Both are now plagued by legal troubles that threaten to end their political careers. In Bolsonaro's case, his hopes of reclaiming the presidency in 2026 appear to be over. Bolsonaro has been barred from running for public office until 2030. Brazil's top court ruled that he abused his power ahead of last year's elections. Judges found that Bolsonaro had used official government channels to boost his own campaign and spread unfounded doubts about Brazil's electronic voting system. Bolsonaro called the ruling a stab in the back. He's either able to be found in a hospital or in a, was it a KFC or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like whilst there, and I think it was for attempting to overthrow the election in various ways. And that, yeah, that was when like the, that storming was happening whilst he was in a KFC in Florida or like just walking around Walmart or something. <laughs> yeah, well, he, at least he knows he'll be safe in America. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a history of right-wing figures fleeing to Florida as like a safe yeah. haven. Well, isn't um, Florida where the Cuban population is quite large? Yeah. And the capitalists fled there during the Cuban revolution. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the reactionary Cubans. So another example of something that was recommended in the latest IPCC report Mm. was um, the mentioning of plant-based diets, Mm. which comes back to this Green Party manifesto. Oh, yeah. And just the fact that this was being said back then already. In the IPCC report, they were recommending for the more advanced economies and rich nations to Mm. transition towards more plant-based diets. But after political pressure from Argentina and Brazil, presumably that that would have been around Bolsonaro's time, Mm. which are both large beef producing Mm. economies and export a lot of their meats, Mm. changed the wording. So it moved into something more about balanced, healthy diets instead of plant-based meat and dairy isn't mentioned once in the entire report even though we know that the production of meat and dairy produces 15 percent of our global emissions yeah it's like incredibly inefficient from an energy and territorial perspective isn't it yeah well you're feeding the animals the food you could be eating yeah which they then have lots of waste in the process and fart it out and produce gases and everything it's just sort of pumping through the energy that we've already produced into something that uses some of it and then is killed yeah and then like that's not even kind of taking the moral side yeah 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 it's just categorically the way that it is isn't it 
Yeah, like I, I always find that one of the kind of historical examples of that, which is quite viscerally connecting in terms of the horror, is a lot of the industrial animal slaughter techniques come directly from the Holocaust in terms of the efficiency of mass killing with technology. I didn't know that. Yeah. There were a few innovations that happened over the course of the Holocaust, yeah. which have scary echoes today, aren't there? Yeah which itself was a project based on North American colonization and some of the racial categories that it took from that project it saw as too extreme and watered down. As in the project of the Nazi party in Germany at that time took its inspiration from the US, right? Yeah, there's just everywhere you look like that, isn't there? There's this kind of line of like inheritance yeah. that goes back through these kind of mass violent projects. Yeah. So we've covered a good number of facts and drifted through into the IPCC report, spoken about ways that that was compromised, and then feels like a good moment to talk a bit about the lobbying that happens for this to be the case and the various parties with different motives in the mix. And so that's what we're going to do in part two of the episode. Thanks for listening to The Tunnels. We've done our best to include links to our references where possible in the description. Please share this episode if you feel these are important topics that need to be discussed. And if you found this episode interesting, you can find the rest of our content and ways to support the making of more on our website, themoleworld.com. In part two, we'll continue to discuss climate denial, lobbying, some notable individuals, the media, more statistics, and finally, where do we go from here? In the meantime, take care, solidarity, and you bring the cheese. I'll bring the crackers. <laughs> <laughs>